You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Chris Hare, CEO of PRTI, a leading waste to energy technology company that converts old tires to energy. Their company, PRTI, processed 50 million pounds of tires in order to perfect the process. And he won an employee design award at IBM. Oh, yeah, even though he wasn't actually an employee at the time. Odd little story there. And Chris has also lived more than 50% of his life outside the U.S. So we've got lots of stuff we're going to talk about today. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Now, before we get started in all sorts of tire Q&A and things, what's your fun fact? My fun fact was that I'm probably the worst musician to ever, ever play the stage of the Albert Hall in London. <laughs> and that's something I'm terribly proud of. Well, and I think terrible is the right word. Terribly, it sounds like. Terribly, <laughs> very proud. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. And you were with, how did, so Albert Hall in London is kind of like Carnegie Hall here in the United States. So how exactly did you manage to get on it? So I was a member of a youth brass band. This is like a youth orchestra, if you will, without any of the stringed instruments. And we were a part of a competition in London when I was maybe 13, 14 years old, uh, except my skills were not quite at the level they probably ought to have been to be on the stage. So I can definitely say I've graced the same stage as some pretty great orchestras and, and entertainers, except that um, I really wasn't up to scratch. But anyway, <laughs> I had, we had fun. It was a great event. And I don't think I harmed the band's chances and you didn't do any harm to the hall so at least i don't believe so no only audio impact maybe got it got it so a little fingers in the ears after it was all done but and you played what i played at the time it was an e-flat bass so that's the same thing in an orchestra as a tuba or in a marching band over here that would be a like a sousaphone that kind of it's basically one of the biggest brass instruments you can lug around, which at the time was a bit of a shock because I played increasingly larger instruments and they got heavier and heavier and uh, harder to carry around away from school. Yes, that doesn't sound like something you could throw in a backpack, most likely, but uh, good. And it's not something that visually blends like you can't hide behind the kid with the big head if you're not one of the better players it's... no you can hide behind the device itself right the instrument itself <laughs> is pretty large so you can pretty much hide behind that but it was a fun experience and a great time so hopefully we'll get a chance to get back on the stage like that but under slightly better pretenses i didn't get a repeat invite put it that way no 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 second chance all right well nevertheless we've got first chances here and i think it's going to be a great one so tell us a little bit more about prti what's your 30 second elevator pitch Sure. So PRTI is an automated, protected waste to energy technology company. And what we've been able to do is verify a process that takes whole car tires and turns them into fuels, turns the fuels into energy, and then we run our own vertically integrated data center from that power. And really the challenge here is that no one has successfully recovered any meaningful value from tires since tires were created. There's lots of attempts and there's lots of fairly small scale things that are done with old tires, but nothing that on a big scale or nothing meaningful. So to your opening, that's really why we've spent quite a lot of time, energy, money and effort 
perfecting the process over time before we really start getting ready to scale up. So that's amazing. Think about the number of landfills that are just full of old tires. So with all this, what is your favorite part of your job and why? It's team building. It's the team. And that sounds cynical to say it, but the reality is when I did a lot of consulting in various stages of my career, the biggest part I missed was the people development and being able to see how the team interacts and how the team evolves and skills that we all pick up from each other. And so the fun part is to see how along this journey, which has now been seven, eight years, we've all changed as individuals and we've all grown. And, you know, at the very earliest stage, my team and I really, we talked about, oh, well, we're not tired people. I think at this stage, we have to stop saying that because I guess we are now. But we all came to this journey through a lot of different experiences in a lot of different industries, you know, healthcare and the space program and telecommunications and other places. And we found some significant overlaps in the way we think because of those, even though those, those industries are different, they have commonality in things like modular business building and intellectual property and some other facets that we've really been able to find a common language between us and really put that to work in growing the business. So it's really fun to see how the close-knit team of people that we've got and the investors and the supporters that we've got around us have really grown together. That's exciting to watch that kind of evolution. And with it, what's one of the big issues of the day and how do you have to adjust your approach when you're personally talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? So I think looking in the mirror is super important and we'll talk about that in a minute in terms of presenting to different groups. In my case, what I find challenging and requires a lot of thought and a lot of effort is to make sure that we maintain a dialogue with our shareholders that is uh, thoughtful, consistent, completely truthful, and is able to match up the reality that we have investors that started this journey with the company eight, nine years ago. And then we've got investors that showed up last week. And they have come from all walks of life. They have all different backgrounds. The checks that they have written have been large and small, and they've been all very much uh, appreciated, but they have different backgrounds. So when you keep that communication with that group, you've got to make sure that you don't leave anyone behind. You don't want to dumb it down either. You want to make sure that you've really captured an essence of what's going on, good and bad, so that everyone's on the same page as often as possible. And, you know, we, this is something we take very seriously and we, we do on a quarterly basis in writing and it's, you know, multiple pages. And then we do monthly all hands meetings with our whole team and six monthly meetings with our board. But the importance there is you get kind of instant feedback, right? You put this document out and if you hit the mark, then you get told you hit the mark. And if you didn't hit the mark equally, you get that feedback. And I found that to be very rewarding. But it's a challenge, too, because there's a lot of moving parts in this business. And there's only some things that we can share because some of them are kind of forward looking, as with any summary of a business. So really, that takes a lot of time and effort and thought for the team and is something that, again, we try and do it on a regular basis and a planned basis. But we also try and almost hold it a little bit if there's some really cool stuff going on that we want to share. We may delay it a few days or a few weeks. You know, it's interesting to think about the subdivisions within a particular audience, because a lot of guests have talked about things like, well, shareholders are one group, but employees are another and clients are this and all different groups on the macro level. But even the idea that within the shareholders, there are those who are of different levels of sophistication, different levels of involvement, different levels of financial investment, and those who have written larger checks, as it were, 
may actually be less involved. Just because it's a smaller check overall, it may still be that person's life savings that they've chosen to put in this. No, no, absolutely. And I think more than just uh, size or complexion, it's that many of our investors think about us every day. Some of them would think about us every six months or every three months or Mm. every year. And so we've got to try and capture those updates in a way that people don't have to read the last one if they missed it or if they didn't find the email or they didn't attend our last shareholder annual update. Again, it's important. It's really, really important because their involvement is what has been the lifeblood and particularly over the last initially, you know, year or two of COVID and then the last 12 months even. Working with private investors as we do has been challenging because there was certainly a period of about 18 months where we're meeting a coffee shop. There's no coffee shop. How would you, when you're addressing those different stakeholder groups, what's something that you would add to help close a certain gap when you're reaching people on different ends of that spectrum, be it sophistication or awareness, et cetera? How would you address both of them to meet both needs without talking over one's head or down too much to the other? How do you find that balance? Honestly, the balance I found is by offering that I'm an available resource and that our team are available at all times. So that if you've hit the mark of saying, okay, it's just about the right amount of information for most people, that's great. And if it's a little bit more than someone wants, that's okay. They can kind of skip over stuff. But if people want more information and more detail and they want to ask questions, they absolutely can and do reach out. And we've made ourselves very, very available. Most of my career has been on the road internationally. And so this is about the shortest commute I've ever had. And so that means that we quite often have shareholders that just show up. And then we have people that say, hey, are you in town next week? Can we meet for a coffee or for lunch? And honestly, the answer is always yes, because as much as they will get an update from us and from me, we generally get a lot out of that dialogue as well. There may be things that they ask that we hadn't thought of that way mm. or maybe help that they offer. You know, when you've got a large group of investors that have been really supportive, they're not passive. You know, the majority of them are not passive and they've got ideas and expertise that they can bring to us to help us solve some of these challenges. You know, as you said at the beginning, this is a different technology, different company. No one's really solved this problem in this way before. And that means that initially we were in the dark. And so we need all the help we can get. This is a big global problem that has existed for 180 years. And, you know, this is our part of helping to solve it. Yes. And thank goodness you're doing that. So with all of these different conversations that you have with people, either now or before, who's one of the toughest audiences, be it an individual or a group, that you ever had to get through to? So this goes back a few years. So about 21 years ago, 22 years ago, I guess, I was part of a small team running an organization in Boston. Again, a lot of my background is telecommunications. So I came to this business after doing a lot of Internet of Things consulting and as well as working at uh, Sony Ericsson for a long time. But prior to that, the telecoms company that we had got the attention of the Federal Communications Commission and specifically the Disability Rights Office. We were doing a load of work with the White House back then in, in Washington. And so they asked us to come present. So being good citizens, we show up and we get ready and we get organized to present. And then 24 hours before the meeting, we were reminded, hey, by the way, you guys may have not have presented to this audience before. Some of the audience will be in person. Some of them will be on the phone. Some of them will be on video. And based on it being the Disability Rights Office, many of the audience may have limited hearing or limited sight. 
So, you know, when you've presented in a public setting over many years in different places all over the world, you kind of move into a rhythm of thinking how you are going to communicate. What's my message going to be? A lot of us work with slides that we absolutely would never read the whole slide. But that doesn't apply because as a public disclosure, it's the FCC, you've got to make sure that everything you share is shared completely. So you literally have to share in that case every slide and walk through it. And it really was a mental shift in order to slow down. Yes. And I think in communication, the hardest thing people have to do is slow down mm. because when you're excited, when you're passionate, when you enjoy what you're doing, you want to share it and it's, there's energy and that's wonderful. But in that case, we had to slow down. We had to make sure that we were checking the room. We were checking the audience to make sure that if there were questions, they were able to be asked. If there were clarifications, we would do that. But it was a study in how to do a presentation in a way that you really didn't expect to. That was challenging. So let me get this straight. You're with the FCC, the Disability Rights Office. This is 20-something years ago, and it's basically hybrid. Some people are calling in. Some people are without a screen necessarily, but they're just calling in on the phone. So they're only listening in via audio. So this is hybrid 20 years before hybrid was vogue, if I can dare to call it that. And it works perfectly now, of course, right? Oh, yes, it works perfectly. Yes, we have no problems with the hybrid work environment now. That makes meetings so much less complicated and so much easier to engage audiences through multiple channels all at the same time. And as such, on top of that, we're adding whole, full or partial visual impairment and some auditory impairment. So in order to compensate for all this, they literally told you that you had to have your entire script in the text of the screen, everything you wanted to say is scripted and on the slide so that people who couldn't hear you well could read along as you were reading. So you were just reading along the slides with them. As So everything we nowadays tell people not to do, that was what they were saying you had to do. I wonder if they still have to do that or if they rely more on closed captioning. And it's not an audience now. I've presented to since. You didn't rush back for a second. Robert. Well, maybe back to the Albert Hall comment, right? Maybe they didn't invite <laughs> you back for a reason. They're in cahoots, Albert Hall and the uh, FCC had a conversation like, Psst, that Chris Hare guy, just, oh, oh, you had him too. Gosh, I'm so sorry. That's right. Exactly. It was a great experience and enjoyed it and appreciated it. And there were a great lot of questions and the interaction was super, but the planning for it was somewhat nerve wracking. I would imagine I'd start twitching. It just sort of flies in the face of everything that I have been taught, everything that I have taught for, yeah, probably about 20 years now, as far as what not to do in a presentation. That would be, so the most important question, of course, is did you get the contract or the gig or the support or whatever you were looking for? We were successful in the outcome we were looking for, which was to gain their support. That's what we were looking for was to educate them and gain their support, which of course required you to have the majority of the people involved say, okay, yes, we like that, which meant they had to understand and have digested the data that we presented. So I guess it was successful in that respect. So all those hoops to jump through were worth it in the end. Yes. Thank goodness. Okay. That would have been an awful lot of heartache to then not land it. Exactly. Oh, kudos to that success. And when leading teams then, tell me about an important lesson that you learned when you went from being an individual contributor to leading your first team. So I think that the hardest part is when you are passionate about your role and you care about your role, the hardest part is letting go. And this is the training wheels analogy on teaching your kids to learn to ride a bike or something. You know, the delegation's hard. 
And it's hard because everyone is an individual. They have their own skills, their pros and cons, positives and negatives. And I think that's really hard to reflect on and accept that whatever job you are delegating, whatever function or task you're delegating, it will not be done by someone else the same way exactly that you would do it. And that's okay. Mm. Because in most cases, it will be done better. And it will be done in different ways. And you can work together to say, well, hang on, I would have done it this way afterwards. Right, because you have to let people grow and you have to let people both succeed and fail in a task. But I think, you know, delegation is really the first part to learn and also recognizing that in that moment of delegation and reflection on delegation, when you are reviewing that work with that individual, the only person that you can comment on is yourself. You can't comment on how they might feel or what they did or did not do. You can comment on how you feel and how it made you behave. And that is a humanizing moment as well in leadership to really not only help someone grow into that role that they're starting out in, but recognize that the feedback you're giving them is personal and that they can respond with a personal reaction too. And I think that becomes a proper exchange rather than managing someone, you're truly leading them. And there's a not subtle difference, of course, between those two functions. And how did you learn that lesson when you found in that role the need to delegate? Did you experience internal resistance? Absolutely. And you want to help. You want to do things for that person. You want to help them because you watch over their shoulder and it's not going quite the way you'd like it to. And you've got to get back out. You've got to get out of the way. You've got to leave the room and check it, check back in. Uh, and of course, like most people, the way you learn that stuff is by doing it wrong the first few times. Um, you know. And what evidence did you get that you were doing it wrong? I had a couple of instances early in my career in the UK where I took back a task that I delegated and it wasn't going the right way. And then it blew up in my face. And then it was like, okay, well, it would have actually gone better if I'd followed through the approach that I had. Plus, of course, by taking it back, you lose the resource gain, which was the whole point of the delegation. Right? I couldn't do the other things I was doing because I delegated it and then taken it back. And so now I was over capacity. And that's really another element that I found over my journey is that if you are looking for succession or growth or improvement, one of the things I've done personally, and I've tried to support teams that do this, is look to your boss or your team and see what parts of their job you can do to support them. So, you know, think of it as, okay, well, I've tried to do 50% of my boss's job to help them. And whether that's through a delegation period, a summer vacation, whatever it might be, if I've taken over some of that role with their agreement and permission, of course, then that does two things. Firstly, it gets me more ready for succession planning, gets me more ready for that thought process of, okay, what does the bigger role look like? But it also means I'm over capacity. I'm at the point where I've now, if I don't let go of something else, I've got my own job, 100%, and another 50% of my boss's job that I've taken and that he or she is now freed up to do their next job. But I also then have to make sure that my team are then taking some percentage of my work. And if that works, then it's kind of a rising tide raises all boats. Yes, that's worked well. It started out unconscious. You know, people take stuff off your plate because they can see you're busy. As that becomes part of a process, then you realize that, hey, that's that's really cool. And that's something I want to do again and again. Yes. And it's sustainable and it's scalable at that point. There's a nice uh, little trickle down effect of it if it's done well. So here's an opportunity then to enable our listeners to find ways to expand their own opportunities and influence. It's our time for the Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. So this is your chance to speak directly to our audience. What's one step that you would like them to take 
which they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. So I like giving homework and the homework trick is a trick, but it's a, it's worked well for me, which is if someone says, hey, can you help me out? And I say, sure. OK, let's talk about what do you need? What are you struggling with? What can I help with? What can I offer some support or advice? And typically I'll leave that conversation by saying, OK, in the next 24 hours or day or week or whatever it might be, can you come back to me with ideas on this, whatever it might be? And generally people come back with something. And that's a measure of how much I'm then able to help them as to how much that homework worked. So my homework assignment to your audience, those that want to participate, is think about your journey. Think about your resume. Think about your mission statement. And I'm a big fan of triangles and pyramids and ancient Egypt and, and <laughs> things in threes. That kind of works for me. So think about if you are speaking, not your resume, not pages of your history, but literally 10 words. Who are you? Hmm. I mean, visualize, okay, I've just sat down on a bus or a train or an airplane next to somebody and someone says, so, hey, nice to meet you. What do you do? Hmm. In that next 10 seconds, before they jam their earphones in their ears and block you out for the next five hours on this airplane, you say something that may encourage a conversation. What are those 10 words? And I think if you can think through what the 10 words at the top of the triangle are, then you may get access to the next 20 words or 30 words or 40 words. So almost think of it like those sound bites. Okay. Think of it as your mission statement. Think of it about as your sentence, your paragraph, your half page. Because if you can approach that for yourself personally, you can probably take the same mechanism and apply it to your business. So do it personally. You know, some people talk about uh, five-year plans and 10-year mm -hmm. plans, and that that's too long a horizon, and people throw them away because it's it's just the world's changing too fast to, to really have that horizon. Okay, think of it in a sentence. So, you know, if that's interesting to the audience, then, you know, play with it, have fun. But think about what do you say to your friends and neighbors or extended family? What do you do? Who are you? Why is it important? Mm. And that's a fun exercise that I use with people all the time. So the opportunity then to take not just an elevator pitch of sorts, but to build it into layers almost. Mm -hmm. So we've got on the one hand, your one sentence opener and then additional from there saying, OK, what's your two or three? If you were to add to that, what would be your next sentence? What would be your next sentence? And really break it down because each level should be able to almost stand alone. It's almost like getting ready to speak with you or to do other uh, media events in the past. You know, quite often you're, okay, give me a 50-word bio. Give me a 100-word bio. Send me 15 headshots. Send me your talking points or whatever it might be. You have to make sure that if you're delivering those to someone, then the person that should have thought most about them is you, right? Because if you've not thoughtfully put that sentence together or that paragraph together, then whoever is listening is going to make up the gaps. Or they're probably going to take the wrong soundbite that you don't want them to take. And that will be their takeaway. And I've had that happen in my career. And it's like you kind of regret it instantly. You think, OK, well, I said that back to front and now it's front page news. And that's a shame when it happens, but it's definitely a lesson to be learned. Yes, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in there. Now, it sounds like you've learned a lot of lessons the easy way. Perhaps there's been one learned the hard way along the way. What's an example of a communications related mistake that you've made? So I'm kind of an optimist by nature. When you're running uh, younger companies or any company for that matter, most of us, I think, have to be optimists by nature. So I always gravitate to, oh, here's a good example. Here's a great example. Here's a wonderful example. 
I worked with a very good friend. Uh, he was a friend and mentor for a number of years, and then we were peers, and then he ended up reporting to me. And things kind of didn't go quite the right direction for the company and, and for him, and I needed to ask him to leave the company. And that was coming for a while, and it was fairly obvious. And I was actually leaving the U.S. to fly to London to go have that meeting with this gentleman. And he phoned me and asked me bluntly, are you coming over to ask me to leave the company? Mm. I took the choice to say yes and explain over the phone, even though we were meeting face-to-face the following day. It was really tough at the time. It was one of the toughest business conversations I've had. And sadly, I've had to lay off a load of staff over the years in different jobs. And that's always hard, really, really hard. In this case, it was probably the hardest because this was someone who we were very close. We'd spent a lot of time traveling internationally together. And for us to be having that phone conversation, it was a shame because I wanted to be in person and having that discussion with him live. And I couldn't do that until the following day. So it was just, you know, what could have been done better? I think we could have spoken more bluntly with each other over the prior couple months, honestly. Mm. And I don't know that it would have changed the outcome, but it would have felt that we had spent more time trying to solve what the next step was. It's ironic that the honoring at least one, when, whether or not more communication and more effective communication could have happened prior to that trip is a whole other issue. But the idea of saying, if I'm going to have to let someone go, at least want to do it face to face and to not just, now I don't know if it sounds like it was a while ago, so perhaps before video conferencing was even feasible, much less prevalent, but getting on the plane and going across the world to be able to have that conversation, which who knows, could have been 10 minutes, 30 minutes, however long it was going to be. I acknowledge that simply because nowadays I feel like that's such a lost art it's now everybody hides behind doing everything digitally. So no one has to have the integrity of being able to look someone in the eye and take ownership for the fact that I'm letting you go, whether it's from a job or breaking up a relationship or whatever it is, you know, it's a text message or ghosting or whatever it happens. It lets you figure it out or you'll just get an anonymous form letter email saying, here's your deal. And here's a cardboard box you'll find to clear out your desk. So just kudos to you for wanting to at least give him the respect of having the conversation face to face. I think it's a lost art. I think the challenge these days, especially the last two plus years that we've all gone virtual, is that it's legitimately been an excuse. The reason is there. Okay, so we've not been able to be in the same room. We've not been able to travel. In many cases, countries literally closed borders. But I think as we're opening up, I'd like to see us get back to a world of people that recognize the cadence of when to meet, when to be in person, when to break bread. You know, whether work that I used to do in Sweden or in Japan, right? The the socialization of decision making was an absolutely critical part of the team building and the team function. And the idea that uh, you would just do a video meeting and that would be the end of the discussion doesn't compute. Uh, And I think we're in risk of going from there to video only and then maybe text only. And and maybe some of that's generational. But I feel very much that there's kind of almost biorhythms of the frequency of types of interaction that have to be acknowledged. Yes, I think at the moment we're definitely skewing far towards what's the convenience factor, the minimal commute, minimal inconvenience, minimal investment of time, those kinds of things. And that certainly has its purpose. No one... No, it's got its place. Yes, yes. Look, I love not commuting every day, an hour each way to work. That makes a huge difference. But we're certainly sacrificing the connection, which I think it's poo-pooed on a lot of levels 
So with that, understanding that these relationships do matter, what if somebody in your organization wanted to move up into a senior leadership role? Aside from their technical expertise, what's one skill that they'd have to demonstrate to you and why? Attitude. The rest you can fix. Mm. And the reason I say that is because we've got a pretty robust policy and I know you have a clean rating on your podcast, so I won't damage that. <laughs> but we have a, let's say, let me call it this way. We have a no donkey policy. Oh, no. Does that work? Sure. We approach our investors and our partners and our team with the approach that, look, if someone's going to be difficult when they're just learning and getting used to the relationship, they're probably going to be more difficult later. Mm. It starts with attitude. It starts with how positive and how constructive the relationship is. So if an employee is looking to come into the organization or to move up inside the organization, in general, we can add to their skills. We can add to their technical capabilities or their leadership capabilities or other aspects through training. But if their attitude sucks, it's not going to suck less if we give them all these extra skills. So they've got to come in with the right frame of mind. And if they've got that, then generally that's why they're already part of the team. And if they're coming in, then frankly, I'm fairly blunt and our team are fairly blunt that this is one of our filters and it has been for some time and it's worked for us. And what are some red flag comments that you'll hear from people that demonstrates that I'll use your technical term that their attitude sucks? Some of it you could frame as kind of not invented here or, oh, that's not how we've done it before. Or I've tried that before and it didn't work. Or I don't like working on it with a team on these type of topics. I tend to do that myself. Or I've been an expert in this space for 25 years and therefore I know it all. And those are red flags that this is not going to be a collaborative approach or things are too hard, right? Oh, well, okay, life happens and gets in the way and someone's not flexible. I think, again, if that's the beginning of the relationship, then when things really get tough, then those behaviors are amplified. So I, I have lots of friends that have had a lot of business success. And what I say about them generally is if they were tough to deal with or they were wonderful people, success and wealth generally amplify. So they either become more difficult to deal with or they become even better people. And I think that's the truth of the baptism by fire. If you've got someone who's in an interview mode and they're a bit tough to deal with, then when things really get rough, it's going to be horrible. Yes, but the uh, familiarity breeds contempt kind of thing that the comfort allows people to drop their guards or their filters, as it were. Finally, um, it real quickly, in 30 seconds or so, as Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that's had a big cultural impact, positive or negative, on a team? I think telling the truth and being unvarnished about the way that you explain things. So one of my good friends and mentors is a guy called Jason Williams. And one of his fun expressions is, if you tell the truth, then you don't have to remember what you told people. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with lots and lots of shareholders and lots of partners, and that's handy because you don't leave anyone behind, as I said earlier. But also, you don't kind of have to remember what you caught up with them on because everything is quite open. I've also found that to be a great tool living and working around the world over the years. You know, you start to avoid colloquialisms and sarcasm as much as maybe I grew up with in the UK because it doesn't translate. Mm. So, you know, being truthful, being as clear as possible. I'm not a concise guy. I like to talk to people and, you know, sometimes you want to be more succinct. But try to be as clear as possible and try to be as straightforward and truthful. Yes. And that should be wisdom for all, regardless uh, of what the conversation is about. So this has been a great conversation. Chris, thank you for joining us. How can people learn more about you and PRTI? 
So I think in the show notes, you'll put up our LinkedIn connection info, P-R-T-I-T-E-C-H dot com is our website. Feel free to look us up there and, and take a look around. You know, at this point, we are starting to be more visible. We're starting to be more out there in, in discussions. So if you like what we do, get in touch. And that could be as potential partners, friends, investors. There's all sorts of capacities that we will be growing in. We're on a mission. We're working hard to make our piece of changing the way that this waste material is turned into something of value, not only in the US, but other parts of the world too. So stand by. And I think all of us wish you just incredible success in that because boy, are we in trouble if we don't figure out what to do with all sorts of waste that we're just creating in metric tons by the minute. I grew up on a little island and the way we waste things in the US just doesn't compute to me, even after 27 years living here. So, uh, look, I think we should all do better. And I think we can. And I'm glad we've got people like you who are helping us to lead the way. So thank you again for joining us today, Chris. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. As always, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so yet, so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speaking to Influence. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.